Hey, welcome to Biblical Genetics. I'm Dr. Rob. Welcome to part three of my unintentional series on human and chimpanzee genomic differences. Uh, this, for me, honestly, is not fun on multiple levels. First of all, the amount of work was phenomenal. I've been working on this morning, noon, and night, all my days off, while traveling, while sitting in airports, while sitting in planes, while waiting in lines. I've been working on this. My computer has been running uh, all night long, multiple nights in a row while I've been sleeping. I'm just crunching numbers, crunching numbers, trying to get a handle on a very difficult subject. But actually, I kind of like that work. So that's not the not fun part. The not fun part is watching all the response videos that um, are basically saying that I'm a kook, I'm lying, that I'm dumb, um, that I don't know what I'm talking about, things like that. Uh, but also, because there's two different people involved here. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Tompkins at the Institute for Creation Research has done most of the work on human and chimpanzee differences from the creationist perspective. And then Gutsek Gibbon has done most of the work critiquing him from an evolutionary perspective. And um, I don't believe either of them. I think they're both making mistakes. And so that's, that's scary because usually when you get into a field and you're reviewing the people that are arguing, you usually say, okay, this person's right and this person's wrong. When you say both people are wrong, well, it's possible that you're actually introducing a third incorrect opinion. And so I hesitate. I am very fearful that I've made some algorithmic mistake or I've transposed two data columns or I've done a plus one or minus one error in my programming. These things happen a lot. I, I am a, a fallible human being and I make mistakes a lot. But because of that skepticism of my own abilities and that fear that I've made a mistake, I've double-checked and triple-checked and quadruple-checked my work. And I think I figured out what's going on. I think I know why Tompkins and Gutsuck Gibbon are getting very different results, at least mostly. Now, uh, this could be a day in the life video, you know, day in the life of a creation scientist, but you'd be bored stiff because all I do is sit here and pound keys and think and pull my hair out and say, oh, and, oh now I got a revelation. I get a giant exclamation point that pops above my head. Ha ha. And I laugh and cackle as I type more keys in, which I was doing this afternoon a little bit because I thought I had learned this one little thing that would answer everything and turned out it actually was a big nothing burger again. Um, but this is going to be um, basically me summarizing how my thought process works, how I've approached the subject and what we're going to do as creationists once all the dust settles, because I don't think we're going to end up with Tompkins' 85% similarity value. It's going to be higher than that, but it's not going to be for the reasons why some of the evolutionists are saying. Just follow me. Uh, there's a verse that, uh, that has been in my mind a lot over the last month or so. It's James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, and I'll add sisters. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. So let's take this down a notch. Let's get rid of the personality, get rid of the angst and the, and the frustrations, and let's just try to work our way through these issues. Now, these issues are going to be difficult. I'm going to have to explain myself a lot. In fact, this is probably going to be the longest biblical genetics episode I've ever done. My, usually I'm aiming for 10 minutes. I never do that. I'm usually 20 minutes, sometimes longer than that. But 10 minutes is always my goal. Uh, this one is going to be a good, long, deep dive into genetics. Um, the reason why I'm in the office right now, well, first of all, most people are away. It's actually after hours. Um, but the, um, the bosses and a bunch of other people were on a trip to Israel. And right now they're filming in Egypt. 
uh, for part of the Egypt documentary series that we just filmed. They're doing background video. So most people are gone and they left one camera behind. And this particular camera has a nice long battery life, except they took all the battery chargers with them. Oh man, so I'm hoping the battery that I have is going to last. If not, I'll have to swap it out with a battery that's been halfway used. Um, but my, um, my little Osmo uh, pocket uh, camera, which I absolutely love, it's now three or four years old and it has an internal battery that can't be replaced. And that battery, well, as you saw in my last episode, it doesn't last very long. So here I'm canoeing a lake and all of a sudden my battery dies. Like, no. So here I am with CMI's camera. I've got a secondary camera over here, uh, which I forgot to turn on, so it doesn't really matter. Um, and I'm just going to roll with the equipment. Here I am in our, in our studio. Now, we're also we're between um, filmings. We don't have a major project going on right now. So on purpose, I'm here with an unassembled studio with all the gears and gizmos. I'm just sitting around. I thought it was kind of a cool backdrop. All right. In preparation for this, I have reviewed a lot of videos, including one by Ruhif. Creationist peer review is utter, utter poo. He published that in 2018. And of course, 80% chimpanzee, the bogus creationism of Jeffrey Tompkins, which Gutsuck Gibbon produced in May of 2023. And then Tompkins responded to me, kind of, which was produced in July of 2023. That one video was three hours long, which is fine. I watched it. It was, it was interesting. And then I did my response video and Gutsuck Gibbon replied, professional creationist, that's me, responds to my Tompkins debunk. Kind of. That was in August of 2023. And, um, well, that one's really funny because she, in the thumbnail, she put a, a speech bubble. And all I'm saying here is, Erica, mean. Uh, I, I, I'm laughing at that because, yeah, I flagged her as being a little aggressive here. But also, I've got a reputation in our office for being naive when it comes to the intentions of other people. I've gotten myself in hot water multiple times when I took someone at their word because I thought they were a nice person and I didn't realize they're actually being duplicitous and I've gotten burned several times. And so here is um, that, that the phrase Erica mean, which is the opposite of people that usually trip me up are the nicer people. I can, I can flag a person who's being aggressive and being overly confident and well, I put her in that category. Now, is she right or not? We're gonna see. Uh, yeah, she's made some critical mistakes. Now, so in the first video on this topic, I said, oh, Erica's making subtle mistakes of her own. What I was referring to was a, a nothing of a comment that she had said that the letter N in a genome represents an indel. It, it doesn't, it's actually a sequencing gap. Indels only apply when you're comparing sequences and you have to add spaces to get them to line up, which is going to be a big part of this conversation. But the letter N is a sequencing gap. Now, the first chimpanzee genome had a lot of little Ns because they lined it up on the human genome and there's lots of indels between human and chimpanzee. But later chimpanzee genomes don't have, you know, 300,000 Ns just scattered, 300,000 gaps of Ns scattered about all over the place. They have them in big blocks. Those are areas that have not yet been sequenced, and that's also going to apply to some of this discussion. Hey, throughout this episode, you're going to hear my voice change. I have uh, learned a lot in the week and a half since I recorded the episode that you've been listening to, and I'm going to inject a few more things. And one of the things that I've learned is I've learned how to draw a, a chart or a map of a genome. I can take the chromosomes in a file, and I can draw lines that equal the length of each chromosome, just do them in order. And then I can take them and 
um, divide them up into blocks. In this case, I think it was 250,000 letter blocks. And if there was a letter N inside that block, I could color that block red. But a block that doesn't have an N, I would color black. And so when I do that for the um, Pandroglodytes 1, that's the first chimpanzee genome, the entire thing is red because there are so many hundreds of thousands of N's scattered everywhere in the genome. But if I do that for uh, the second uh, chimpanzee genome, Pantragalitis 2, which is uh, Pantro 6 that Eric called and uh, uh, Jeff called a Pantro 6. I get one with a lot of red, but it's mostly black. But the reds are scattered all over the place. And then shockingly, if I do that with Pantro 3, which is a version of the chimpanzee genome that was finished just this summer, I get um, most all of it's black, and there's a couple of red things scattered about. And I, that's mainly just the centromeres, some pericentromeric regions. Um, but it's, it's, it, the, pan, the chimpanzee genome is nearly finished. They've done a lot of work on it, and it has changed significantly even since uh, Pantro 2. Uh, I'm calling it PT2 just for short in my paper, but Pantro 6 is what it, it's a nickname for it, even though it was version 2. They called it Pantro 6. But if I do the same thing for human genomes, I take the original human genome, uh, or, or at least one that was published about the same time as the first chimpanzee genome. It's um, HG16 or something like that. I'm just calling it H16 for human version 16. You can, again, there, there's lots of blocks of red scattered all over the place, little ones, big ones, and you can see what was not sequenced in that genome. But then uh, Erica and... Jeff were using human genome 37 or 38, and I mapped both of those also. They're very similar, and they're also not that different than the original human genome. They did fill in a few things, but not everything. So there's still, there, there's giant gaps. Now, Tompkins, he's not just using the chromosomes. When you have a genome file, there are accessory sequences often associated with it. Those are sequences that have not yet been added to the chromosomes themselves. They haven't been assembled, but we know they belong somewhere in that genome. So he's, he's not using what's called the top-level genomes. Uh, Gutsa Gibbon, in her work, in fact, in one of the videos where she showed what she did, it's clear that she's using the top-level genomes only. She's skipping over the accessory sequences that belong there that aren't there yet. So for like um, Pantro 2, there were 4,300 extra sequences in the database. There, there's actually, I think what I said in my last video, there was 10 times more sequence than they had room for the sequences. But they're there. In Pantro 3, I think there was just over 1,000 extra sequences. And the sequences left over are a lot longer than Tompkins' original contigs because what they're doing is they, they had these, these pieces of chromosomes that they've been assembling and putting together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. And so the number of extra sequences gets smaller as they add them into those gaps in the chromosomes. But it's not easy. It's taken a long time. But the cool thing is when you make a map of the telomere to telomere project chromosomes, there's no red. It's completely blackified because they got rid of all the ends. And so these maps are amazing and fun and really interesting to study. If you're listening on podcast, um, I'll probably have a link to an image where you can see them. 
But this is what we're talking about. We're talking about comparing genomes and genome quality and completeness of the genomes and what which version of the genome are you going to use? The entire thing with all the accessory or just the chromosomes? Now, in that first video, I tried to move the argument. I didn't I tried to not throw Jeffrey Tompkins under the bus. I tried to get away from uh, Gutsuck Gibbon's arguments and say, okay, but here's my position. My position is we don't start down here at 85%. Let's start at the 96.6% similarity level that was produced by uh, Richard Bugs. In fact, uh, Seaman and Bugs 2020. That's their calculation. I said, that's a good starting point. Well, that didn't go over too well because everybody noticed that I didn't address the, the obvious questions that were presented. So this video here, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it in detail after thousands and thousands and thousands of analyses that my computer has done. I also watched Jeffrey Tompkins, The Creationist Who Can't Math, the movie, another two and a half hour long thing by Dapper Dinosaur. I found that uninteresting and uninformative in a dozen different ways, which is typical of, of his presentation style. Ah, but then um, Robert Carter, liar. Creationists have a bad relationship with honesty. Part two, uh, 23rd of August, 2023, again by Dapper Dinosaur. Now, I watched the Jeffrey Tompkins one because it was new. It was only a couple of weeks uh, ago when that was produced. I thought that would be addressing this human chimpanzee issue, but he really didn't. But this other one, though, uh, Robert Carter Liar, he definitely was addressing that and uh, repeating some of the mistakes that Erica made, which I'm going to address. It's okay. Everyone's going to make mistakes here, myself included, but just, just follow me here. Um, I also watched Creationist, Creationist Behaving Badly, Dr. Rob Carter, 23rd of August, 2023 again. Um, this is a Dan of Creation Myths uh, saying, I'm disappointed in Dr. Rob Carter. Well, hey, Dan, thank you for thinking so highly of me that, um, that you were disappointed in my response. Um, I think after this level, I might go back up in your esteem uh, because I'm going to destroy everybody in the process. And I don't know, I kind of think that you're going to like that process. Um, oh, by the way, before I go any further, hey, Dapper Dinosaur, I want to issue an official apology. I did not intend to dox you in that article that I wrote, uh, Robert Carter's Wrong About Everything? Question mark. Uh, that was not my intent. I had a little bit of bio information on, on Dan at Creation Myths and Erica, Gutsuck Gibbon, but I didn't know who Dapper Dinosaur was. So just as a hat tip, I said, well, okay, I'm going to Google this person. And here it is, this Dapper Dinosaur, a guy in England whose who's image was a T-Rex with a bowler hat and a tie. I had no idea there was two of them that you and he had a similar imagery. I had, why would anyone think that? And I didn't realize that you were trying to be incognito. So my mistake, very bad form on my part, and I apologize and I apologize profusely. So please forgive me. I was trying to do the right thing, but you know, not once it was pointed out, I said, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that, okay? Are we good? Yeah, and then you're going to call me a liar in this video. I'm actually going to show that clip and then show why I'm not. Okay, but we're, we'll get there. Um, I didn't watch uh, Creation Myths, uh, multiple things on the waiting time problem. Not this time around. Maybe in the future I might deal with that. But what we're dealing with is the difference between human and chimp similarity. And we're not really going to wrestle with the uh, 1970s studies where uh, scientists were or hybridizing human and chimp DNA in a test tube. 
Uh, we're not going to deal with the earlier studies where they're sequencing single protein coding genes and comparing them. We're really looking at whole genome similarities. It's, it's a different ball of wax. It's a very difficult one to, to actually nail down. Even today, it's still difficult to nail it down. So we're going to be talking about Jeffrey Tompkins' work in 2018, 2016, 2013, 2012, 2011. We might tangentially reference uh, Richard Bugg's blog post where he suggested that human similarity is about 85%. We'll talk about Semen and Bugs 2020 paper where they said 96.6% and others. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time analyzing a, the videos, a couple of videos that Gutsuck Gibbon has produced. I'm also going to mention Dapper Dinosaur and Creation Myth. Hey, Creation Myth, you're going to be unscathed in one of my analyses because you didn't mention it. I don't know if you wanted to or not, but you didn't, so you're going to escape that one. I'm sure you're not worried about it, but hey, just way to go, man. Um, Concerning Dr. Jeffrey Tompkins, the geneticist, he is trying to come to grips with how similar humans and chimpanzees are. And for well over a decade, he's coming out with numbers that are very different than the numbers coming out of the evolutionary community. Um, most, you know, I want to say secular scientists, I hate saying that, I'm not just going to say scientists because he's also a scientist and I'm a scientist and I'm not an evolutionist. So uh, what do we say, evolutionary scientists, scientists who believe in evolution, you know, it's not the word is not just scientist because that's a no true Scotsman fallacy. So scientists who believe in evolution, sorry, I have no other way to say it. Generally say humans and chimpanzees are 99% identical, 98% identical. Some people say 96, some people might even say 95. Um, but it's it's a high number. Tompkins is getting estimates below 90%. 85% is like the average of most of his his work. Well, Ruhif publishes this, um, this video, ADM, Creationist Peer Reviews Utter Utter Poo, and he claims that if you start with Tompkins' 84.388% similarity value and you properly weight the data, you're going to end up with 96.194%. So basically 85% to 96%. If you account for the lengths, see what Tompkins did was he generated a whole lot of data and he used a computer program called BLAST, which is searching from a, from a query onto a target, a query sequence to a target database. And he said, okay, I'm gonna take this chimpanzee sequence and I'm gonna search the human genome to find a match. And the computer program is gonna reply um, where the match is, which he didn't record, um, how long the match is, what the percent identity is, and other, other statistics like that. And all he did was take the um, the percent identity column for 18,000 readings and take the average. And that was an incorrect thing to do. But what it gave him was an average of 84%. And this is what Ruhiff said. He said, ah, but if you weight the data, if you say, okay, look, I have a match of 1,000 letters, a match of 10,000 letters, and a match of 1 million letters, you don't take the average of those three values. No, you take the total length, which is 1 million plus 1,000 plus 100 or whatever I just said. And then the total number of matches. And so really it's the, the million letter long one is gonna dominate. That's the one that's gonna um, overwhelm all the smaller ones and the, your average match is gonna be much closer to the average match that you get in the longer readings. Because a longer reading is more of the sequence space that matches. And fair, that, that is one way to do it. Now, I, someone somewhere along the line suggested what I'm about to say is incorrect, but I think there's a better way to do it. That is, if you have a chimpanzee sequence of, let's say, 10,000 letters, 
and the computer program matches 1,000 letters of the human genome at, let's say, 95% similarity. Well, that means that 90% of that sequence is being ignored. Only 1,000 letters have matched up with the human genome. That means 9,000 letters are just unaligned. They're just swinging in the breeze. There's, n there's no match. We don't know how similar that is to the human genome. But what if we took a conservative approach and said, okay, let's take that 10,000 letter long chimpanzee sequence. And let's say, conservatively, the whole thing is 95% similar. Then we can say, oh, well, then we expect um, 500 non-matches and 950 matches. Okay. And then if you do that for the, the sequences that Tompkins was using, that the total length of the sequence is not the total length of the match. You get a different way to weight the data and your percent similarity drops. Not by a lot. I wish it was a lot, but it, it ends up in a 94% range. So instead of 96, you're probably talking about 94. Now, there might be reasons why that's incorrect. I do think it's better though, but you know what? Um, none of that matters. Weighting is not always appropriate. I know um, uh, Erica said, it doesn't matter what your sample size is, Jeff. You have to weight things no matter what. E no, that's not quite true. Because, I mean, Tompkins said, look, I had 18,000 data points. That should be a nice round average. I mean, he didn't say that. I added that part. That, that should give me a good, robust average. And that's true if your data are normally distributed. You know, the old bell curve. A normally distributed data set is something that biologists crave. Statisticians love it. Oh man, when you find data is normally distributed, you jump up and down, you take the average and you're done. But biology is usually more messy than that. And his data is not normally distributed. In fact, instead of being shaped like a bell curve, it's shaped more like a ski slope. And I, I applied the Shapiro-Wilk test of normality to three different aspects of his data. Um, now, I couldn't do it online. There's some online programs where you can just add some data points and it'll tell you what the, the probability of it being normally distributed is, uh, but none of them would accept 18,000 data points. So I found a Python plugin and I, I did it that way. I used Python to do it. I tested the length of the chimpanzee sequences that Tompkins was using. They are not normally distributed. In fact, in his paper, he has a chart where he's got a big old peak on the left side and it trails off. It's skewed toward the right. There's some that are millions of letters long, but most of them, in fact, the mode is 1,004. So almost all the sequences are about 1,000 letters long. That's not a normally distributed data set. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the matches. Well, if you look at the areas that match between the chimpanzee and humans, uh, in the, those sequences he's using and the human genome that he was using, you also don't get a normally distributed data set. Most of the matches are small. Some of them are like 30,000 letters long. Well, that's, you know, considering that some of these, these, these sequences he's using, he's testing, are millions of letters long, most of those sequences are not included in the match. But some of it is, and you get some long ones, but a lot of short ones. That's not normally distributed. In fact, for those first two ones, the Shapiro-Wilk test told me the probability of these things being normally distributed is 0.0. .0. So, not normal. Um, but it's the percent identity scores. The column that he averaged, that's the problem. In fact, when I made a histogram of the values, all, all 18,000 values, I saw that not only was it not normally distributed, it was actually the inverse of normal. There was nothing in the middle 
and everything was on the outside. So there's a peak, there's a peak in the high 90s and a peak in the high 60s and almost nothing in between. There's hardly any sequence data in the 85% range. So you can't just average that. That's not the right way to do it. But there's more than that. Because how do we know that these sequences are a fair sampling of the chimpanzee genome? If they're not a fair sampling, you can wait six ways to Sunday and you're not going to get the right answer. It's not going to improve if your data are biased. There's a lot of ways you can introduce bias into a database like this. Now, what we have is, uh, I think it was 700 and something thousand, nearly 18,000 long sequencing reads that came out of a chimpanzee, in fact, a chimpanzee named Clint. They used the long sequencing technology and did it multiple times to get a good average. And then they used short sequencing technology, millions of reads on top of that. And then they used Sanger sequencing to target individual letters to make sure they were correct. So each, I mean, you're talking about almost 70-fold coverage. So any errors in the in a sequencing machine readouts are going to be averaged out easily. 70-fold coverage is beautiful, nice, high-quality data. And they have all these things. And Tompkins took 18,000 of those, hopefully at random. If it's not a random selection of those, he introduced bias. But the experimenters who designed the protocol could have written a, a bias protocol. That protocol could have targeted gene content over highly repetitive DNA. Or the machine itself. What if the machine was more competent at sequencing through uh, gene-rich regions and less competent and sequencing through highly repetitive regions? Or what about after the fact? I mean, someone had to apply some quality control steps to this data. What if the human, again, another protocol developed, but then also human looking at it visually, that, that could also introduce error. And that's, that human is gonna say, not that one. Okay, these are good, oh, not that one. And you're gonna be selecting sequences out. That's typically what happens when you're dealing with data like this. There's all these different ways to introduce bias. If there's any bias in that database that Tompkins is using, weighting doesn't count. Now that's a minor issue, but that, that all this uh, hot air, that's, not, that's a little bit insulting, sorry. All this time has been spent by Tompkins' opponents railing on him that he didn't weight his data. And yeah, it's true, he probably should have, but the first step that must be done is you must look to see if the data fairly represent the chimpanzee genome, and no one's done that. So I don't actually know the answer to the question. I'm, I'm suspicious, especially because as they built more and more recent versions of the genome, those uh, sequences, they're called contigs, to contiguous DNA elements. Those contigs, more and more of them have been rolled into the genome. But in the um, one version, they had so many million letter Ns in the genome to represent spaces that they wanted to fill in, and they had 10 times more sequences in the sequences that, 10 times more letters and the sequences that had not yet been added to that genome. Yeah, what does that mean? It means that building genomes is hard. They've been working on the chimpanzee genome literally for 20 years, and they're not finished. The human genome literally got finished this summer, when the telomere to telomere project finally published the fully sequenced Y chromosome. We now have a Y chrom uh, human genome with no gaps. 
finally, and I'm going to be using that in my analysis. Okay, let me give you um, a, an example of um, how bias might creep into an analysis. Now, uh, Ruhif used the analysis of, you, if you want to find out the fuel efficiency of your car, you don't do uh, two trips, a long trip and a short trip, you know, one on the highway, one in the city, you can get very different uh, fuel efficiency. What you do is you take your total miles driven, the total gallons used, and you average them. Well, you don't do that with an average, you don't average two things to get an accurate number. And Tompkins flagged that. He said, I have 18,000 data points, but no, okay, two is not right. But, but the point is, you have to add up a lot of trips, the total miles driven, and the total number of gallons used to get fuel efficiency. But imagine that there's a, a father, and his son has just reached driving age. He says, son, I'm going to donate to you the old family car. But the father's wondering if it's worth it. I mean, that car gets very poor gas mileage. Would it make more sense to get rid of the car and buy a newer car that has a higher fuel efficiency or let the son uh, drive the oil burner, right? So he hands the son a notebook along with the cart. He says, son, every time you get gas, I want you to write down how many miles you drove since the last one and how many gallons you put in. Now, that doesn't sound like a great idea because what the dad should have done is wrote down the odometer number at the beginning of the year, the odometer at the end of the year, and then tried to figure out maybe through credit card receipts or something how many gallons of gasoline the kid put in the car. But we don't have that. For genomes, we don't have the completed genome. We have snippets of the, of the genome. So this is a pretty similar analysis here. So, but what the dad doesn't know is that uh, the son is going to, when he turns in that notebook at the end of the year, uh, he's going to give him an entirely biased notebook because dad doesn't know that the son every Saturday night is going driving out to the boondocks and spending all night long doing quarter mile drag races with his friends in the old family car. And he's not writing that information down in the book. So at the end of the year, the total odometer readings is going to be way off compared to what's written down in the notebook. But dad never wrote down the odometer reading. So just an example, taking that the highway mileage thing and amping it up a little bit to show you that if you have biased data, you cannot figure out the underlying distribution. If this, this, this set of, of 18,000 contigs that Tompkins is using doesn't fairly represent the chimpanzee genome, weighting doesn't do anything. So uh, Ruhif, Gutsa Gibbon, um, Dapper Dino, um, I'm not convinced that that's the right approach. I'm just saying. But there's something worse than that, so we'll get to that. Now, let me give you another example. Imagine that um, you're studying uh, Mendel's famous pea seeds, uh, pea plants, and you have purple flowers and white flowers. And there's a field of wild pea, pea plants out there. And just because of the allele frequency distribution in this field, it happens that about half the flowers are white and about half the flowers are purple. And you're like, well, I'm a young scientist and I want to go and find out what's the average pigment concentration of the leaf. And so you go out and you measure it. And you're measuring it in, uh, say, micrograms per square centimeter. And you measure a whole bunch of white flowers and a whole bunch of purple flowers. You just happen to get about 50-50. Now, it wasn't your intent. You're just ra measuring random flowers, but you got about 50-50. And the white flowers have zero pigment, and the purple flowers have, let's say, one. One uh, microgram per square centimeter, or whatever I said a minute ago. So, zero or one. What's the average? It's not 0 0.5. 
0.5 would be um, maybe a light blue flower. There are no light blue flowers in that field. It is an imaginary average. The average pigment concentration of a flower is not 0.5. That's akin to what we're dealing with here in these percent identity values in Tompkins database. There's a bunch way down there in the upper 60s and a bunch way in the upper 90s. And you know what? When you take the average of those two things, you get a, an average in the middle of about 85%, but there's almost nothing in the 85% range. It's an illegitimate average. Now, you can take the average if you're like, you're in a factory that's harvesting this pigment and you're trying to um, extract the pigment and you want to know, you know, what's the average yield of pigment per acre or, or whatever of, of, of these flowers? Well, you harvest it, you grind it up and it's going to be about 0.5. And that's fine for an industrial application. But for the other application we're talking about here, you can't do that. There's no flowers at 0.5, just like there's almost no sequence space between humans and chimpanzees at 85% similarity. And the stuff on the bottom end, the 60% range stuff, that's also an artifact. The second huge issue that Tompkins getting beat over the head on is something called gapping. When you are using uh, this program to search for, you're, you're taking a, a query, a, a sequence query, and you're looking in the database, the target database, to see if that sequence exists. Well, what happens if every once in a while there's an extra A or missing G in your sequence, which is typical of genomic data? I mean, I'm, all the stuff I was doing on, on, um, on, on COVID-19, there's tons of little gaps in the data, and you have to account for them, you have to line them up, or else you can't calculate a percent similarity. So... Um, Ruhif starts us off in his video and Erica or Gutsuk Gibbon had a, a screenshot of a paper that he supposedly tried to submit to Answers Research Journal. Now, uh, I don't work for Answers in Genesis. I have no inside information on this paper, um, what, what the, the, the back and forth was. I, I have no idea. I'm an outside observer and I've only heard the story from, uh, from Gutsuk Gibbon herself in her video. So, I don't know what happened there, but this paper supposedly got submitted. Um, full disclosure, though, I, I think I have a copy of that paper. I'm not sure how I got it. I don't remember where it came from, but I something clued my memory after doing this for a couple of weeks, and I did a search on my laptop. Oh, there it is. Whoa, look at that. Well, uh, the, the paper copy or the, the PDF copy I have exactly matches uh, Erica's screenshots. So um, Dapper Dinosaur that this PDF is floating around. Erica has a copy. I don't remember how I got a copy. Honestly, I don't. Um, I could probably search on my emails to see who sent it to me, maybe. Uh, but I do have a copy of it. You know what? You made some valid points. You really did. You made some valid points in that paper. But there is a glaring error in that paper. A huge error. Uh, Gutsa Gibbon rep repeats that error verbatim. She does it again with a different set of letters. She does it again with a longer set of letters. Um, uh, Dapper Dino, uh, did I say Dapper Dino? Ruhif uh, introduced the error. Guts have given repeated. And Dapper Dino had a, a, a new iteration of that. He said, imagine that I have a King James Bible that's missing chapter 2 of Genesis. And I want to compare that to another Bible. 
Well, if you compare it to the Bible, you're going to conclude that these two Bibles are vastly different. Because if you're missing chapter 2, the next verse is chapter 3, verse 1. So, verse chapter 2, verse 1 on the other Bible will line up with chapter 3, verse 1, and the rest of the Bible will be out of sync. And so, there'll be almost no commonality between the two Bibles. That is um, now become an urban myth that's not what we're talking about. Yes, if you have, if you look at the total sequence differences, you'll get a vast difference if you don't allow for spaces. But the program being used is the basic local alignment and search tool. It finds areas of local alignment. And in fact, if you blasted a King James Bible that misses uh, Genesis chapter 2, it would come back with a 100% match in chapter 1 only. But the highest match in that Bible would be 100%. Um, so Erica is um, producing a lot of data. She's doing a lot of comparisons. And this is hard work. And I complimented her on, in my last video. And I'm, I'm going to hold that compliment. Um, Erica, you're doing a lot of hard work. Now, I'm going to disagree with some of your things. And I hope you can take my criticism. But you're really working hard on this. Um, but she's comparing you know, humans and chimps, bonobos and chimps, lions and lynxes, lions and cats, two different types of cow, uh, a Chinese person, a Japanese person, human chromosome 21 to itself, chimp to itself, human to itself, human to chimp, in different ways, using different uh, styles of this BLAST program that Jeff has done and what she's calling the good version of BLAST, which is honestly just the default settings. And, well, I can do default settings also. In fact, most all of my searches have been default setting. The thousands and thousands of blast searches I've been doing over the last month, I'm doing them in pairs. And I'll do a search with gapped and a search with ungapped parameter. So to allow gaps or not, and then I'm changing all the other parameters to see, I'm trying to reproduce um, Erica's results. I can reproduce Tompkins' results in general. Now, I don't have a supercomputer, and six months of computing time to take all 18,000 contigs and blast them on the human genome and blast them on the chimpanzee genome. I can't do that. Um, well, I probably could do it uh, using Amazon Web Services. I mean, I've got the ability to do cloud computing. I've done it before. It's just been a while. I just didn't feel like doing it this time because I'm really prototyping. I'm trying to do a small-scale study to figure out the nuts and bolts of what's happening in Tompkins and in Gutsuck Gibbons' work. And so I'm taking a set. In fact, what I ended up doing was I took, um, 100, I took 150 of the smaller chimp contigs and I started blasting them. And then I started uh, one at a time deleting the ones that were taking a very long time to run. I mean, one of them, I started the, the search at night. The first one did, the second one started. I went to bed, I woke up, the second one was still running. It's like, I'll oh, forget that, delete that one, man. And so I ended up with 124 contigs. They're pretty short. And it would take about nine hours to run against any genome. One of those sequences took six and a half hours out of the nine hours. But then the next genome, it only took three hours. So they're taking different lengths of time. I could have been more proactive, but since I was running it at night mostly, or while I was working, um, I just let it run. I had to do that against multiple different genomes. But she's got all these different species comparisons within species, between species, and individuals to themselves, which should give you 100%. She's claiming that Tompkins' methods give you very low similarities, like 85% similarity. I'll just say that on average, between any comparisons. But her methods give you 
like 98% similarity, 99% similarity, 100% similarity, if you're comparing something to itself. But the thing is, my methods, I get 100% similarity whether I use gaps or not if I'm comparing something to itself. I can't validate her work. She's got a computer program that her husband wrote. I'm sure he's a smart, uh, a smart computer program. But I tell you what, hey, Erica, um, I'm going to put my computer program in a GitHub account. In fact, I've already loaded. I've got several computer programs um, and example data that anyone can look at. Because honestly, I want to know if I'm making a mistake here. I want someone to look over my shoulder and say, OK, Carter, here's your computer program. Oh, it looks like it's working or it's not. And I'm very afraid that I transpose gapped and ungapped. Very, I'm seriously con concerned that I've done that. Now, most of the times, gaps and ungaps give me essentially the same number, but sometimes they give me different, and I'm worried that I messed it up. So I'm paying attention. I'm, I'm making sure. I'm following my logic. I'm following my reasoning, and I can validate Tompkins' results. Now, I don't agree with his conclusions, but if I do what he did, I'll, I'll get the same numbers, essentially, in my small data set. Okay, I'm adding a second note in post-production here. I did a lot more work on that question of can I reproduce Tompkins numbers. Uh, turns out that I can't. Uh, I do not get uh, that, that peak around 69% uh, that he got. Now, in this 2018 paper, he was using gapped searches. In the earlier work, he was using ungapped searches. We're going to talk about that a lot more in a little while. But I did both. I took that uh, subsample of 124 of his uh, contigs, which had a very similar distribution uh, in the PI dent values as the total 18,000. And I blasted them against H37, uh, H38, P1, P2, P3, and the uh, T2T genomes. So, oh, and H19. So I, I blasted them against seven different genomes, three chimpanzee and four human. But when I use a very similar genome to his, there's a lot of versions of H37 out there. Um, I think I got one that's pretty close. It shouldn't be radically different. Um, but the, when I did it for H38, I got the same numbers, essentially. So the genome version is not affecting the results here. I'm not actually sure what is. But I did not get values as low as his. And when I graph my results versus his results, my results are generally higher. Now, when I use an ungapped search, they're a lot higher now, Erica, ungapped, produces much higher percent similarities, as it should. In fact, between his, like, 70% range became 95% similarity. But if I use an ungapped search like he did, his 70% range goes up to maybe 75% or something like that. So, uh, in general, allowing for gaps gives you worse percent identities. Even though you might get a longer stretch, you get a, a worse match. Um, but I cannot get to his numbers to pop out of the, the data. I, I'm not reproducing them. I'm only kind of approximating them. And that bugs me. Uh, but right now, that's the best I can do. But if I do the same thing with Erica's things, which is essentially just the default parameters, I don't get the same results. And that concerns me. So Dapper Dino said, uh, ungapping must be used or results are basically meaningless. That's in his Robert Carter Liar video. Uh, yeah, and that's not true. Erica said, you end up with non-100% identities of an entity to itself. 
You can't get a 100% identity of something to itself when using the ungapped parameter. Uh, that's not true. And in fact, I'm going to show you why that's not true, both conceptually and then experimentally. That's not true. In fact, shocker, using the ungapped parameter setting gives you a higher percent identity on average. Higher, not lower. Now, you get shorter match lanes, fine. But on average, you get higher percent identities, and it doesn't matter which genomes you're comparing. Except when you compare something to itself, you get 100% no matter what you do. She said, that ungapped parameter actually makes more closely related things appear more distant than less closely related things. Uh, not according to all my calculations. So I want someone to look at my program because I'm not getting those, those answers. I'm getting what I expect and I expect ungapped to give me something similar to gap. Just gap does longer. In fact, there's reasons why gap gives you a lower percent identity. I'll get to that in a second. She said, uh, she called um, Tompkins my brother in Christ. She called me that also. Um, Erica, I don't know if that's sarcastic or if you're actually calling on the name of Jesus. Now, if you're a believer, this conversation changes. It changes very quickly. And all of a sudden, we're going to be talking about attitudes and the position of the heart. But you said, your work, talking to Tompkins, should be able to reproduce a 100% identity regardless of the number of base pairs. And it doesn't. Erica, it absolutely does. Absolutely 100%. Watch. I, I took Excel and I made a column of uh, 1,000 random numbers between 0 and 3. And then in the next column I said, if the random number equals a 0, make, put an A here. In the next column, put a C, put a G, put a T, and then I concatenated all four of those together to make a, a column of 1,000 random letters. Then I copied that and pasted it to make sure it didn't keep changing. Then I copied that again and pasted it, but in the, the pasting, I added an extra letter at position 500. Now, I decided to put a G there, and it just so happens, at random, before I looked at it, it just so happens that there was three Gs right around position 500, so now there's four. And so we have, in the examples given of, of Ruhif, Gutzak, Gibbon, and others, we have this example of two sequence strings. They're only off by a single letter. Now, if you just line them up, you get a 62.9% similarity. Why? Because the first half is perfectly identical. The second half is not, not identical because at random, there's only four letters. So 25% of the time in any random string, you can have two identical letters. So 50% in the beginning, another 25% of a half in the end, and you get 62.9% identity. I took those two strings and I duplicated them again. But this time, on the shorter string, I added a space at position 500 so that the two sequences are the same length. The beginning half and the ending half are exactly the same, and there's a space. Now, the entire sequence length now is 99.9% identical. And the other one, the entire sequence length is 62.9% identical. That is true, but that's not what BLAST is going to report. You're, you already know what's coming, don't you? BLAST is going to report for that first example, 100% identity, not 62.9%, 100% identity. Because here's how it works. You can set the reward and the penalty for matches and mismatches. Usually it's 
a plus two for any letters that match and a minus three for any letters that mismatch. And it starts off with a word and the word size, we're all using a word size of 11. That's, that's default. So BLAST is going to look for 11 letter sequence that exactly matches between your query and your target. And then it's going to try to extend that match. And if there's a, if the, the letter after is an exact match, it's going to say plus two. So you start off with an, a match of 11. That's 22 points already. The next letter plus two, the next letter plus two, the next letter plus two. And so if you're lining up these two sequences that are of unequal lengths, you're going to get the first 500 letters are going to perfectly match. You're going to have a score of 1,000. But then the next one just happens to match because they're next to G, so now you have 1,002. But the one after that's not going to match, minus 3. The one after that's not going to match, minus 3. Now, in the way this has been conceptualized by these other people, you'd think that the 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 score is just going to drop and drop and drop and drop until you get to the position 1,000. The score will be somewhere around 200-ish. So from 1,000 to 200-ish. But no, there's a, a, a parameter called the X drop. You can also set this, but the default is 20. Once you hit that 1,000 score, the score is going to start dropping away. And when it gets to, well, it gets 1,002 minus 20, when it gets to 982, it stops and then it'll say, oh, well, the highest score that I had was at 1,000. Now I'm at 982. I'm stopping. Where was I at 1,000? Oh, it was this sequence here. That first 500 letters, 501 letters, was an exact match. It's going to report a 100% sequence match. Not 62.9%. 100%. Meanwhile, the, the sequence uh, search, the next one that allows for a gap, well, when it hits that gap, it, the gap penalty is usually a negative five to open a gap and a negative three to extend the gap. I know uh, Gutsa Gibbon and, um, and uh, Tompkins, I think they're using negative three and negative three, but it's usually a negative five and a negative three. That's the default. So in, in my system here, when it gets to 1001, 1002, those letters don't match. So it's going to take off five points. But then after that, all the letters match and the, the score is going to go up and up and up and up and up. At the end of the run, at, a, at position 1000, it'll say, hey, I found a 99.9% .9 match. Notice the ungapped match produced a higher score. No, no, a higher score. Lower score, but a higher percent identity value. In fact, um, there's lots of reasons why Ungapped match, ungapped searches will produce higher percent identities. Once you get to a region that doesn't have a great match, you might have to add a couple gaps here and there, and it might line up and it might not line up. And so every once in a while, you get a mismatch and get a minus three. Your percent identity value can actually go down as your score is going up. So you can have a higher scoring sequence pair that's actually a worse percent identity. And th that happens all the time. So in general, this is, uh, now look, this is theory. I just gave you the reason why this should be true. An ungapped search should give you a higher percent identity, not a lower percent identity. Therefore, Erica, this is not Jeff's problem. Using the ungapped parameter is not driving his 85% similarity value. That's not the answer. And I know you spent a lot of work on this, but it's not correct. Ruhif, that was an incorrect analysis. I'm sorry to point it out, but okay, let's pause here.
opponents. Am I correct? Is that how the BLAST program works? Will an ungapped search in this scenario return a result of 100% or a result of 62.9%? If we disagree with that, we can't go any further because I'm telling you how the program works. Now, it's going to report 100% match in a smaller match length. Okay. Ungapped searches on average give you smaller match lengths. And, and I know that. I saw that. So that's a lot of theory. Let's talk about what I did. I went and downloaded a whole bunch of genomes. I downloaded Pantro 6. That's the, uh, a genome that was ba- basically... Tompkins is working on these contigs that this laboratory made, these long sequences from a chimpanzee. And it came from a chimpanzee named Clint. Pantro 6 is Clint's genome. So we, Tompkins is working on the unassembled version of the genome, and Pantro 6 is the assembled version of the genome. The difference is that the Pantro 6 genome has giant blocks of N in the middle of it, huge spaces of N. Those are areas of the chromosomes that they haven't completed yet. And so when you download a genome, you have two options. You can download only the chromosomes, I think that's called the top-level version, or you can download the entire thing, including all the extra chromosomes. Now, if you go to, I'm, I'm on the NCBI website, I'm assuming it's the same as Ensemble. I'm assuming that they just link to the same, the same server somewhere, but I always use NCBI, so that's where I'm going to uh, download my genomes. And I have a choice. The RefSec version, hmm, the GenBank version, hmm, of the chromosomes, or the bulk data download. Well, I took the GenBank version because that was the version that was created by the researchers who submitted the contigs. But the bulk data download included, includes the chromosomes and 4,300 extra sequences. That's important because the contigs include all those extra sequences. An assembled genome does not. The top-level genomes that Erica's working with doesn't include the extra sequences. Oh. In fact, um, that genome, Pantro 6, had 28 million ends in 662 distinct blocks. But there's 217 million letters in the unplaced extra sequences. They have 10 times more sequence than they allowed spaces for in the genome. Whoa, that's huge. Now, how are they going to fit that in there? I don't know. But again, all this means is that building sequences is difficult. Um, In the contigs, there are no ends. That's important because an N is a wild card. In a blast search, if there's an N in the query or the target, it's going to assume that's a match. Now, if you have a long stretch of N, it's not going to give you a result. It's going to say, and you're going to get, you're not get anything in your data file. But if you had just a single, maybe a couple of Ns, it's going to assume it's a match. So if you did this kind of work on that first uh, chimpanzee genome, you're going to have an artificially higher estimate of similarity. So any of those studies that were comparing human and chimp trying to do something like Tompkins was doing using that first couple of generations of chimpanzee genome will be artificially higher. I don't know how much artificially higher, but at least a little bit. So I downloaded the main chromosomes and I downloaded the bulk data, but the bulk data strangely didn't have the mitochondria or the Y chromosome. Now, after doing BLAST, I'm, I'm looking at the location for things that are landing, and yeah, the Y chromosome data is in the bulk data download, just not as an assembled chromosome. What a pain in the neck. But that's just the nature of things. 
Worse than that, um, I got there and there was a flag on the website. It said, this record was removed as a result of standard genome annotation processing. What? Pantro 6 was removed? Oh, man. So I wrote NCBI. I said, hey, I'm looking for Pantro 6. Is this it? And I said, and what's the most up-to-date version of the chimpanzee genome? So they said, yes, this is Pantro 6, also called Clint underline PTRV2. See, Pantro 6 is the nickname. The problem is that the most recent chimpanzee genome is Pantro 3. Oh, man. So now we have a five-year-old version of the chimpanzee genome that has a higher number than the brand new one, which was finished just this July. So Pantro 6 versus Pantro 3. What a, this is so frustrating. But there's a lot of inside knowledge that I'm missing here. Um, I don't know what to call Pantro 6. I'm going to call Pantro 6 because... Tompkins and Gutsuck Gibbon are both using it, calling it that, but Pantro 3 is the newer one. In fact, Pantro 3.1.1 is 3.14 gigabytes in length, or 3.14 billion letters. There's only 2.9 million ends. Pantro 6 is 28 million, so they reduce the number of ends by 90%. And there's only 25 blocks of ends instead of 662 blocks. And there's only 1,400 extra sequences, and those sequences are longer than Tompkins' contigs. So what they're doing is they're figuring out how to link contigs together into bigger pieces and how to add them to a genome, and the genome got bigger. It went from 2.8 billion plus that about 3 billion to 3.14, so they added over 100 million letters to it. Okay, they're building, they're getting better. So I got Pantro 6, Pantro 3. I already had uh, version 38 of the human genome. Uh, Gutsuck Gibbon is using version 38. Tompkins, in most of his work, is using version 37. I'm going to hope that they're similar enough. I'm not going to worry about it. I already had it. I already had a BLAST database. I'm just going to use that one. It's 3.09 billion letters long, but there's 150 million ends in 799 blocks. The first human genome had fewer N blocks, but version 38 of the human genome has 150 million letters that are just blanked out. Highly repetitive DNA they haven't assembled yet. Except I also downloaded the Telomere to Telomere Project uh, uh, genome. It has no ends, no wildcards. It's 3.1 beautiful billion letters long, complete from one end to the other. And I'm going to be using that. And I then performed many thousands of blast searches. Some of these took seconds. Some of them took hours. I did have to skip over some of the highly repetitive ones. Like I took, started with this, um, this set of 150 shorter contigs, and when one of them would hang, I would just delete it. Well, one of them was like TTAGGG, TTAGGG, TTAGG, TTAGGG for like you know dozens or hundreds of repeats. Well, something like that for something as stupid as blast, it has to check every single TTAGGG. So there's so many different permutations that happen when you get a repetitive sequence like that. It takes forever to process. So forget it. Oh, by the way, BLAST is also, I said stupid, it's not comprehensive. The Smith-Waterman algorithm will absolutely find every single match and report the best match, but BLAST is heuristic. It makes educated guesses. Generally, they're better, and it's 50 times faster than the Smith-Waterman algorithm, thankfully, but just because it reports a match doesn't mean it's the correct match. And I saw many times where I know the chromosome I started with in my query and the, the match it flags is actually on the wrong chromosome. And sometimes gapped and ungapped 
would flag different chromosomes. Okay, another note added in post-production. Once I had the ability to draw a map of a genome, that means I could also map other things onto that genome. And one of the last things I did before I sent my paper into the uh, Journal of Creation, I took human chromosome 22 from the Telomere to Telomere project. I took the first 500,000 letters of that genome and I divided it up into sections, either 300 bases long or 1,000 bases long. And I took each one of those sections and blasted it against the, uh, the most recent version of the chimpanzee genome, which I'm calling PT3. I took each one of those 300-letter segments, number one, number two, number three, all the way up to uh, the 500,000th letter, and blasted it against PT3, ungapped, and gapped, and did the same thing with 1,000-letter-long uh, sequences. <clears throat> Just because uh, most of the contigs in Tompkins' database are 1,000 letters long, but a lot of the blasting that, that Gutsa Gibbon is doing is 300 letters long because she's trying to repeat his... Uh, an earlier paper of his where he did a lot of 300-letter blastings. Okay, so I'm, I did both of them just for the fun of it. But I was able to map the, the location where these blast hits are. And this, I'm telling you what, this, this tells me a blast is useless. It is not something that can be used to assess human-chimp similarity unless you physically or manually uh, check every single result. Because what I got was a lot of places on this chromosome would map to some place in the chimpanzee genome, but not chimpanzee chromosome 22. It would be all over the place. But I had a huge section that mapped to chimpanzee chromosome 4. And when if I zoom up on that, it's an order. So it's, it's in order on human chromosome 22, and it's in order on chimpanzee chromosome 4. It's the same section, or at least Blast is thinking it's the same section. But another piece that all of these things in a row on human chromosome 22 map to the same exact spot in chimpanzee chromosome 9. The same spot. Like, overlapping. It's, it's a highly repetitive sequence. Well, Blast found the best match on a different chromosome, it just all jumbled on top of each other. When I did a gapped search, when I allowed for gaps, that huge chunk of overlapping things that went to chromosome 9 in the chimpanzee jumped to chimpanzee chromosome 14. Again, overlapping. All these blast hits are in the same exact location on that chromosome. So I'm thinking that, that there's ridiculous things happening here. You cannot simply take blast results and take an average and estimate the human-chimpanzee difference unless you know where these things are mapping to, and you have to select out all the duplicates. But Erica, waiting is irrelevant. Yeah, waiting should have been true, but when you have data like this, waiting tells you nothing. You can't wait garbage, and a lot of these results are garbage results. Now, I would love to do an entire mapping of every single piece of the human genome onto the chimpanzee genome and vice versa. That would be fascinating to see where these things map to. But I don't think that's necessary, so I'm going to skip that. I'm just reporting to you some new data that's fascinating, interesting, and a little bit frustrating. And just, um, honestly, BLAST is not the answer. Yet another note added in post-production. I am still working, still learning, still developing my techniques,
Um, and I realized uh, something after doing this for a little while is that when you blast for 100 base pair sequences, 300 base pair sequences, 1,000 base pair sequences, you get a lot of spurious results. You get things landing in the wrong parts of the different genomes. But when you look at 10,000 letter long sequences, you get a much better localization. So what I did is I said, okay, the next interesting part of the human genome is human chromosome two, because you know supposedly this is the result of a fusion between two uh, ape chromosomes that fuse in a human lineage only to make human chromosome two. So I started off with um, the beginning of human chromosome two in the telomere telomere project data. And I started blasting it in, in 10,000 base pair chunks that are overlapped. So zero to 10,000, 5,000 to 15,000, 10,000 to 20,000, 15,000, 25,000, just overlapping. And I, I let it go and I looked at the first 500,000 letters. Now the people on video, um, I have a, um, a chromosome on the bottom that I just made a black uh, a line to represent the human chromosome. I, I messed up the length, but whatever. You kind of get the idea anyway. You can see this rainbow of colors pointing to the very beginning of chimpanzee chromosome 2A. And they're not overlapping, they're actually in a line. So, yeah, look at that. We get good localization when we use long enough pieces and allowing for gaps. That's another key. So by allowing for gaps and long, uh, long queries, you get pretty good localization. But I was able to color the lines according to the percent identity. So I, I see like red, which is 90% uh, or less. I see oranges, which are in the low 90s. A couple of blue lines, which are in the high 90s. There's one in the middle here, which actually uh, locates the chromosome 10, right in the middle of this. That's very interesting. Uh, but that took three days. It took three days to look at the first 500,000 letters. And I said, well, I want to do the whole chromosome. I don't have enough time. So I say, let's skip ahead to the most interesting part. And of course, the most interesting part is the supposed fusion region. Now, when you do that, and here I'm looking at every 100,000 letters, and I'm uh, skipping over 90,000 letters. So I'm doing 10,000 letters, skipping over 90, doing 10,000 letters, skipping over 90, doing 10,000 letters. And when you start at the left side of the supposed fusion region, I'm going to say supposed because I'm on, I'm on the fence on this, honestly and truly. Um, I don't care either way if we had a fusion or not. Um, I know there's some evidence for it. And I know people are saying there's not good evidence for it. And that's not the point of this, but I'm exploring myself here. And when I look at the fusion zone and I look at the left side of it in human, that maps to the right end of chimpanzee chromosome 2A. When I look to the right side of the fusion zone in human, it maps to the left end of chimpanzee chromosome 2B. Now notice 2A and 2B there's no other genome in any genomic anything where they labeled a 2A and a 2B. It was right after they started sequencing the chimpanzee genome, people read as red flags, said, hey, we got a problem here. How are we can do comparisons to human? So they took, I think it was chimpanzee 13 and 14 and relabeled them 2A and 2B. And they reversed 2B. So it was actually backwards. All the other chromosomes and all the other sequencing uh, programs, the P arm, the short arm is first and the Q arm is second. That's traditionally how we've always done it inside of genetics. We've always done it in genetics. The short arm of the chromosome is first and the long arm is second, but chimp 2B is backwards on purpose so that it would map easily to human chromosome 2. 
That's just history. That's just the way it is. But when you look at the middle of the fusion site, you get different results. You start getting things that are, that are mapping to the incorrect locations. When I add more data, when I try to fill in the gaps, and I'm trying to do every 10,000 letters, I can see, again, you get a, a, a whole bunch of stuff on the left in the human, maps to the end of CHIMP 2A, a whole bunch of stuff to the right side of the fusion site in human, maps to the left side of CHIMP 2B, and in between, in the so-called fusion zone, you get mappings all over the, human, all over the chimpanzee genome. But most of them are either, looks like in the centromere areas of a different chromosome, or the telomeric area of different chromosomes. Oh, this is really cool. And some stuff on the left side of, um, of different chimpanzee chromosomes. So this is telomeric, I'm uh, sorry, yeah, telomeric and subtelomeric DNA. Really interesting. Um, I'm not sure what it all means, but I got a little better in my analyses, and I finally did a proportional study where I said, no, let's look at uh, where this thing actually is on human chromosome 2, and then I started figuring out how to draw a rainbow of colors. So I can start off with red, and then all the colors in between, from red to blue, uh, are the 90 to 100% range. So all the blues are in close to 100%, all the reds are close to 90%, greens would be about 95%. And I could just look at these maps, and it's just beautiful and interesting and fun and fascinating. And um, it's a little early in the analysis, so I'm not really sure what to do about it, but we, there's a lot of information there saying that there is telomeric-like data in the middle of human chromosome 2. Now, the reason I'm saying that, you creationists, is because if it's true, it's true. We can't say it's not true. We might come up with a different hypothesis of why it's true. I know some other creationists says, oh, well, this is because, you know, this actually matches this other chromosomal piece over here, and, and, you know, this might not be an ancient fusion event, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it's not a simple fusion. It's a very complicated process. There's a lot of pieces missing, and the two uh, chimpanzee chromosomes don't line up with human chromosome 2, because human chromosome 2 is shorter than 2A plus 2B. It's a very complicated scenario, but it's fun. Now, my next step, I'm going to look for the supposed deactivated centromere, which I think is on the right side of the uh, supposed fusion site. So I think it's a chimpanzee 2B, or it wouldn't be chimpanzee in this case, it would be the human chimpanzee common ancestor 2B. That's the centromere that got deactivated. But again, nothing in genetics is easy, but everything in genetics is fun. So that's my simple report. Erica, if you want to do this, um, I suggest using longer um, uh, query sequences, not short ones. If you use longer ones, you'll get better geographic mapping. But you're going to get a lot of things that are, that are popping up all over the place. It's not going to be simple. And, and again, I, BLAST is probably not the right tool to use to tease this out. Oh man, this is fun, but it's hard. There's some crazy complicated stuff happening. So I start off by blasting the full length contigs against Pantro 6 using the gaps and non-gaps. Now I know it's working because I'm getting different values. I also know it's working because you can't send blast the command, make it gapped. It'll say, what are you talking about? But you can send it, make it ungapped. And if you spell it wrong, it'll have an error. So if you have a hyphen, U-N-G-A-P-P-E-D, 
it works. Anything else, it doesn't work. So I know it's listening to me and saying, okay, I'm going to perform an ungapped search. I don't know why you would want me to do that, but I'm going to do it. And it does, and it does it beautifully and well. And plus, ungapped is faster. It's really nice when you have ungapped searches. It just goes faster than gap searches. But I'm doing both at the same time anyway. I'm taking these 150, whittled down to 124 full-length contigs and blasting them against Pantro 6. I also took the longest contig, and on the website of Pantro 6, there's a button that says, Blast this genome. I said, okay. I clicked on that. I sent Blast the longest chimpanzee contig against Pantro 6, and it flagged a hit on uh, chimpanzee chromosome 3. It also flagged a whole lot of other things, but the highest scoring hit by far was on chimpanzee chromosome 3. So I made a BLAST database also for just that chromosome to make things go really fast. And I took that long, that long contig and I broke it up into 100 base pair segments, 300 base pair segments like Gutsuck Gibbon is using, 1,000 base pair segments, which is very similar to Tompkins' contig database, and 10,000 base pair segments. And I, pref I blasted all of those segments, gapped and ungapped, and I drew a lovely little graph, which just shows me how many letters get skipped. In the shorter searches, almost everything is accounted for. In Gutsa Gibbons' 300 letter searches, which she's doing many, many of, uh, she's getting almost complete, usually three, all, 300 match, uh, seek, all 300 letters are a match. Therefore, waiting doesn't really apply there. Sometimes they're a little shorter, sometimes a lot shorter, but usually all 300 letters are a match. So you got very few things are being excluded. But by the time you get to 1,000 letters, you're losing about 25%. In other words, if you had a contig of a thousand letters long, only 750 letters match. The other 250 letters, you have no idea how well that matches to the, the human genome. If you did something uh, 10,000 letters long, for a, if you don't allow for gaps, you're losing 75%, almost 80% of your contig. Now, this is a contig from a chimpanzee blasted against a chimpanzee chromosome. And BLAST is not lining the whole thing up. It's only taking, if you don't allow for gaps, about 20, maybe 25% of it. The other 75%, you're not getting an average. You don't know how that well that lines up. If you allow for gaps, you only lose 10, maybe 15%. So allowing for gaps, you cover more of the sequence space. If you don't allow for gaps, you lose a lot of the sequence space. And that's for a self-same thing. I mean, I'm taking the contigs that were used to build the, the Clint genome and BLAST is skipping some of it. So then I took, using Erica's methods, I took 300 base pair uh, random pieces from the Pantro 6 genome, which is Clint's genome, and I blasted them against the telomere to telomere chromosomes. And sure enough, the raw average was like 98%, gapped and ungapped. They both gave me the same answer. Very fact, my gap was a little higher. Ungapped, sorry, was a little higher than the gapped. Again, I can weight them. I get a, again about ninety-eight percent. But weirdly, I mean, I'm doing all these um, these comparisons here, and I'm finding a piece of chromosome two A in chimpanzee that maps a chromosome fourteen in human using an ungapped search, but chromosome Y using a gap search. I'm looking at a piece of chromosome 8 that maps a chromosome 11 in human, a piece of chimpanzee mitochondria that maps a human uh, chromosome 5, a piece of the chimpanzee Y chromosome that maps a nothing in the human genome. 
See, again, Blast is blind. It's just an algorithm that's statistically giving you what it thinks is the best match. You have to curate these answers. You can't just take them as is. You have to look very carefully. Now, there's another question that's been raised. It's about another a setting in the program. Do you set the maximum target sequences to one and do you set the maximum high scoring sequence pairs to one or not? Well, that's um, Erica believes that that will slow down the 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 program it, it doesn't in fact it makes no difference at all the only difference is in the report it makes if you set targets maximum target sequences to one it'll find whatever chromosome we're looking at because our target sequences are a set of chromosomes whichever one has the highest match it'll only report that chromosome and if you hit maximum high scoring sequence pairs to one it will only give you the highest scoring hit on that chromosome. Not necessarily the best match, but the highest scoring hit unless you sort by percent identity, which no one's doing. So you have target sequences and high scoring sequence pairs. If you set any of them to another value, your BLAST report will have a number of, of different results. But the top line is always the highest scoring match. And Tompkins is using the highest scoring match. So I'm, I'm setting, max target sequences to one and max high sequence high scoring sequence pairs to one because i've got so many thousands of blast reports i don't want to have that much data stored and i'm just plus i'm only interested in the highest one anyway except every once in a while i want to see where else is going but generally i only want the highest scoring match because that's usually the appropriate one but again not always now i've done a lot of work on these contigs that tompkins was using in his 2018 paper I took a subset of them, 124, and I looked at um, how they compare to two different or three different chimpanzee genomes and four different human genomes. But the main results I was reporting in my paper, I'm looking at a Pantro 2, which is his Pantro 6, and I'm showing that I'm getting the same results. Now, the numbers aren't exactly the same. You know, when you look at these contigs, which were used to build the Pantro 2 slash Pantro 6 genome, you don't get exactly 100% all the time, which I thought was weird. You get a little bit less than that. I, I think that's because when you take the contigs and make a genome out of them, they have to break the contigs or add a, a gap or do some rearranging. It's not perfect because it's really tricky stuff to, to build a genome. Um, for some reason, you don't get 100%. And yet, my numbers aren't exactly the same as Tompkins' numbers. Now, the average, if I draw a regression line through the data points, it lines up beautifully with his numbers. But my numbers are different. I'm not sure why. But when I look at the new chimpanzee genome, the one from the summer, most of the numbers are close to 100%. They, they, the percent identity goes way up. It's not perfect yet, which... But see, that's also strange because in my genomes, I have all the accessory sequences. And the accessory sequences are those contigs that haven't been added yet. And yet, even then, I don't get 100%. I'm not sure why, but BLAST isn't perfectly identifying things. But the point is this. Those contigs onto chimpanzee genomes give you very high percent identities. And the newer genome gives you a higher percent identity than the older genome. When I look at the human genomes, though, so Tompkins had um, several data tables, one for chimpanzee percent identities, one for human percent identities on HG37. Remember, HG37, HG38, I got very similar numbers. So here I'm just looking at 
for, for most of my paper, I'm just looking at what I'm calling H38, human genome 38, and the telomere to telomere project. But strangely, now the, the two chimpanzee genomes, if I do gaps and ungap searches, didn't matter. They gave me very similar numbers. But the human genome, though, if I do gaps and ungap, I get very different numbers. The, if I don't allow for gaps, I get very high percent identity scores. 95%, 98%, 100%. In some of those things where Tompkins reported 65, 70%. What? I, I'm not sure what's going on here, but in his 2018 paper, he used gapped searches. If I don't allow for gaps, my identity scores jump 20 points for the lowest ones. But if I do allow for gaps, both HE38 or H38 and the telomere to telomere project data give me much worse results. Not quite all the way down to the results that he gave his 2018 paper, but allowing for gaps gives you bad alignment scores. Uh, Eric, I've said this a dozen times now. Do you understand that? Allowing for gaps gives you bad identity scores. That's the opposite of what you reported, and I don't know why. So that was fun. Um, That took a long time. I've done a lot of other analyses. I've tried to compare... um, uh, I, I tried to look at, um, let me think, percent identity versus Tompkins contigs, percent identity versus percent identity. Um, I tried to look at the, the length of the match versus percent identity, the length of the match versus the score, the score. Ver- I mean, I'm trying all these different comparisons. It's taken me uh, weeks and weeks to do this. I'm loving doing this, but my results, I'm sorry, Erica, um, my results are contradicting your work. I don't know how your program works. I can't validate it. I can validate Tompkins' results and I don't agree with them, but I can't validate yours and I think there's an error in your program, which is why I put my program out there for other people to analyze if they're so interested. So, in the end, with Tompkins, I can generally validate his results. My points tend to be slightly higher because I'm using a more modern human genome than he was. Um, Chimp to human, yeah, it, it yields 98%. With or without gaps, Unless you're using all those contigs that aren't in the chimpanzee genome, um, then you start getting some very strange things. And yet, I don't know what percent of the chimpanzee genome those contigs represent. Remember that, that the first one, there was 10 times more extra sequence than they allowed for in the genome. Now that they've been changing it, they still have more sequence than they have gaps. So I don't know what what to do with that. I don't know how to weigh that. Maybe one of you can figure it out. Um, So, oh, oh, another thing. Uh, Erica is is doing all this stuff with this computer program and she's using, I think it's called top-level genomes. That is only the chromosomes not the other sequences that are there, that are contigs that could be added to the chromosomes later, but she's only comparing the chromosomes. Tompkins wasn't doing that. He was using all the accessory um, sequences also. Now, a lot of those contigs became chromosomes, but he's also using all the accessory stuff, and that's why his numbers are less than your 96% range. So when we're comparing, like, you know, lion to tiger or lion to to kitty cat, um, you've got genomes that are blanked out. When they fill those in, they might be different. Or if you use the not top level, but did the total sequence download and made a database of that, then you have all the accessory things also. I think your percent identity is going to drop a little bit. But again, it's not gap versus ungapped, and that's the problem. That's something that that frightens me here because I can't validate this. 
So I'm trying to validate Gutzek Gibbons' result, but gapping does nothing. Maximum uh, high-scoring sequence pairs does nothing. Maximum target sequences does nothing. Uh, we could sort by bit score, or we could sort by uh, by percent identity, but no one's doing that yet. Now, those things don't affect the speed of the search, as Gutzek Gibbon suggests. Um, ah. But there's one big difference. I'm, I'm trying. I'm racking my brain trying to see what difference she's doing to Tompkins, and there's one huge difference. Uh, the default setting for Blast is to filter dust. That is, uh, highly repetitive sequences in the query will be masked out and will be disregarded. They won't be included in the searching. It makes it faster. And uh, Gutsa Gibbons, in, in her her list of all the different parameter settings, her good setting. Um, dust is automatic. It's the default. Therefore, she's filtering out um, all the lowercase letters that are in those genomes. Because when they build a genome, the repetitive stuff they put in lowercase letters and the non-repetitive stuff, kind of, that's kind of how they do it. They put it in uppercase letters. Well, dust will filter out all the lowercase stuff. And so that's affecting the similarity between the genomes. They're being blanked out. Tompkins is saying no dust. Don't do that filtering. So that's affecting the results a little bit here, but no one's realized that quite yet. Um, it doesn't uh, affect the, the percent similarity because Tompkins only taking the top hit. Um, none of those parameters, and I've tried all the different parameters I could try, none of them should affect self to self. It doesn't matter what you mask or what you blank or if you do gaps or not gaps. It doesn't matter. Self to self should give you 100%. And Erica, when I do it using a gapped search, dust or no dust, that's the only difference between Tompkins and you that I can see, I get 100% identity when I do a, a genome against itself or a chromosome against itself. 100% identity. As expected, what's going on with your computer program? Uh, I turned off the percent identity. Um, that, that, that will say any high-scoring sequence pair less than 50% identity, I think, will cut it off. I just turn that off. E-score doesn't do anything. Uh, word size doesn't do anything. Number of threads doesn't do anything. Uh, deleting uh, high-frequent or very repetitive sequence only speeds up the process, but doing that will also bias results a little bit because those things are probably more different between the genomes. I don't know. I didn't have time to search at all. It just takes too long. Um, okay. Taking these 124 contexts and blasting them against the four genomes using gapped and ungapped. Yeah, I get um, an unweighted similarities, 92 to 97%. Pantro 6, 92. Pantro 3, 96%. Or 97%. For uh, G38 and the telomere to telomere, the human ones, I get 94% ungapped, but only 86% using the gap parameter. If I weight them, yeah, that changes it a lot. Everything jumps up to 97, 98, 96% for the humans, fine. If I weight it according to the other way to weight, I get 99%, 96%, 98 okay? But there's something I want to point out here. That is the percent length of the match. You have these queries, these contigs, and you're blasting them against either chimpanzee or human genomes. If you use a gap search, yeah, 95% on average of that contig will be included in the hit. 95% on average, may, very often it's 100%, sometimes a little less, but the average is 95%. If you allow for gaps. If you don't allow for gaps, 
75 to 85% of that contig will be included in the match. So you're not losing that much of your query sequences. But in the human genome, if you don't allow for gaps, 37% is retained. Let's call it one third. Two thirds of the contig sequences are not included in the match. Two thirds of it are less than your match identity. So even if you get 96% on the highest area only, and that's the thing about BLAST, it's only giving you a local region that gives you the best alignment and it's ignoring the rest and you cannot know what the rest is telling you unless you line it all up and then do one of those, uh, count up the entire sequence length, but no one's doing that. If you allow for gaps, it jumps up to 57%. In other words, you're losing at least half of the contigs doing that match. So yeah, you get 96%. Does it really mean anything when half of your sequences are being excluded? Oh, it's actually more than that. Because when you use the ungap per, per, uh, parameter, there's some, another thing called the culling limit. I had to look this up. I didn't know what my default was. Um, in fact, all I could do was search through all my, my, uh, my scores, and the lowest scores I got were about 44. So I'm thinking of culling limits set to about 44. In other words, you start off with a word of 11 letters that gives you a score of 22. If you add nine more letters, you'll get a score of 40. And if you don't get at least nine more matches, it's going to report a null event. It's not going to give you a result back. It's below the culling limit. Now, granted, you can have a couple of mismatches in there, so you might need some more things, but you have to have at least a score of 40 to be reported. And in my ungapped searches, I sent out 124 queries. I only got 108 back, 107 back. 14% of my queries came back as invalid. In other words, they don't even exist. Those chimpanzee sequences don't even exist in the human genome. You're talking about things a thousand or more letters long. They're not there. They don't exist. So we need more verbiage for talking about human and chimpanzee differences here. Uh, there are some, some things I'm, I'm struggling to explain how to use this, uh, how to explain how different they are when you have different things that you're talking about. All right. How am I going to wrap this up? Uh, Erica said, I think he's specifically trying to minimize the human-chimp genomic similarity and that he's willing to try absolutely any method to get the job done. In, in other words, uh, he found a result that's too good to be true and then ran with it. Uh, but, but Erica, your computer program is not producing results that match reality. I, I showed you theoretically why that's not true, experimentally why that's not true you should not be getting, using any setting of BLAST, an 85% similarity when you're blasting something against itself. There's no parameter setting that will do that. So I'm wondering if you yourself found a result that was too good to be true and then ran with it. I'm asking you honestly. And now I'm asking if that's true, if on the record you'll go back and say, okay, I was wrong. Because you keep on saying that Tompkins needs to say he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's not admitting it. Well, are, are you going to admit it if you're wrong? Compare your computer program, ask your husband about it, have him look at my computer program, look at them. Let's see if, who's doing what's wrong here. Because I'm getting the results I expect. And you're not getting the results I'm expecting. And I cannot figure out what's wrong. And that kills me. I figured out what's wrong with Tompkins. I can't figure out what's wrong with your stuff. I, and I want to know. So here's the problem. 
Um, the reason why um, that Erica Mean thought or, or speech bubble in, in the thumbnail that you produced humors me was because, you know, I've been around the sun now 54 times. And the younger jerky me, I would have stomped on anyone who, who disagreed with me and was wrong. And I lost a lot of friends doing that. And, and older me now, I've, I've sobered a little bit. And I realize that, well, I've made a lot of mistakes in my own life. And there's a lot of embarrassment back there when you make mistakes. And I've known for myself that when one has to eat crow, that crow is even extra bitter when it comes with a healthy dose of snark. See, when you go all out on a limb and, and attack someone and destroy someone's reputation and whatever, telling you're wrong, you're dumb, whatever, and then you make mistakes of your own, oh man, that's humiliating. So, are, are we mature enough to handle this? I'm not attacking you, notice. I didn't call you girl, I didn't try to diminish your reputation or anything. No, I wouldn't do that. Um, um, Dan, uh, how do I rank in your eyes now? Hey, um, a dapper dinosaur, you dared me to do this analysis. You called me a liar to my face on video. The dinosaur turned into the camera. He is a liar. Uncapped will miss huge amounts of genetic similarity for the sake of being faster to compute. That's why it's only appropriate in specific circumstances where the presence of insertion or deletion mutations are unlikely and not likely to cause major changes in the data if they do occur which is never the case for cross-specific comparisons. Rob Carter is a geneticist. He knows this. When he pretends that this is just a choice that you can make, he is lying. And yet I was already in the middle of this analysis when I, when I watched that video. And I was like, yep, okay, here it comes, buddy, take this. So no, I did the analysis that you called for. And I laid it out. I do not think I'm lying. I do not think I'm wrong. I don't think I made any mistakes. I was as careful as I could be but I can make mistakes. All right, everybody, let's go. Let's figure this out. Finally, we're not gonna be able to make a fair comparison of chimp to human until we have a full chimp human, uh, full chimpanzee genome. Unless someone wants to go and estimate the percent of those extra sequences that will make up the final chimpanzee genome, someone might be able to do that. But of course, you get a 96%-ish similarity when you exclude the most dissimilar sequences. When you use dust, when you have giant blocks of N and all the repetitive stuff, when you're, when you're getting rid of the most, when, you, when, you're, when you're blanking out the most dissimilar sequences, that's the result, that's what you get. So this is why I went to Seaman and Bugs' paper where they tried to align things as best they could, and they came out with 96% similarity, 96.6% similarity, after they cut out all the things that differ, that, that, that don't align between the genomes, the highly repetitive stuff. And well, okay, now we add the highly repetitive stuff back in, and the percent similarity is gonna drop. Now, Erica suggests in one of her videos that it might be 95%. I would be happy with that, honestly. I would love it if it's 20%. No, that's impossible, that's stupid, I shouldn't say it. I would love it if it's 90%. I would love if Tompkins is right and it's 85%. I just don't think it's that low. But it's less than 96.6%. It's less than the numbers that we're getting. So let's go. We still have some more work to do here. And I have laid out um, some arguments. And I think that um, we've got more to do. Okay. So to my supporters, I want to thank you. Um, I, I have a two terabyte uh, spare hard drive right here that I was able to purchase with your, your gifts. Um, I would not have been able to do this analysis without that because I've already put in not quite a terabyte of data, 
but um, I have put a lot of genomic data in there and all my blast results and all my graphs and things, and that thing is gonna fill up if I keep doing this for a couple more months. Genomic studies takes a lot of data, and, and thank you, because I couldn't have done it without that. And I probably could have done it on the cloud, but it just would have been so much harder. It's just easier to do it here, even if this is slower, to do it here. And by the way, I tried to get um, the NCBI website to blast my set of chimp contigs on the human genome, and it ran for a day and a half, and it kicked out an error, and it wouldn't tell me anything after that. So I think it just gave up on me, but that's why I'm doing it uh, one at a time here. This is something I'd love to do. I love to analyze data. I love to start with a blank set and, and go through things and figure it out, and my battery just ran out. Wow. For all my supporters, thank you so much for bearing with me on this long journey and this long and uber-technical presentation. Uh, totally different than my normal style. But uh, I'm going to wrap up here before my, my cell phone runs out of memory because it's been struggling with memory lately because I talk too much, apparently. Thank you for listening. God bless you. To my opponents, please take another look at this. To my supporters, thank you so much for supporting me, financially specifically, because I needed that, that hard drive to do this work. If you'd like to support this channel, there'll be links in the show notes below. I really appreciate a like, a thumbs up, a share. Uh, to all you haters out there, um, I don't see any reason to hate on me for this particular one. I opened up, and again, as honest as I can possibly be, I am not hiding anything here, dapper dinosaur. I'm being as open and honest as I can be according to the data. I just think the opponents are barking up the wrong tree. Tompkins was getting a couple things wrong. And it makes me afraid because I, I'm not the arbiter of all truth. I'm not the font of all knowledge. I'm constantly making mistakes and misunderstanding things. And yet here, after all this work, I think I got it. I really do. So now we'll see if you think I got it too. Be blessed, everyone. Have a wonderful day.